I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ines Stepman. And I'm Delano Squires. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have a packed show today. Inez is going to start off on a topic um, that she's been thinking and writing on lately, that it's the tragic death of Jordan Neely on the New York City subway. You've probably seen the viral video by now, but we are going to break down all of the different implications. Delano has a really interesting topic. He's going to discuss the anti-marriage men of the right. It's not just Andrew Tate, says Delano, and we'll tell you why. Uh, I'm going to be talking about negotiations over the debt ceiling that unfold here in Washington, D.C., and Josh is going to give us uh, kind of a download on CPAC Hungary. He's just got back from that. So we're excited to go through all of these different issues, and I'm going to kick it over to Inez to start us off. Thanks, Emily. Um, so obviously, there's this now nationwide case of uh, the Neely case in New York. I think that that will probably become as uh, iconic a name as the Bernie Getz case if, in fact, he's charged. And I'll get to a bit of the more optimistic side of this um, right at the end before I give everyone the facts. So the, the background of this, of course, is the general rise of disorder and crime in New York City. Um, New York is not unique in this. In fact, I've elsewhere argued that actually it's getting an undeserved reputation for being the worst at it, when in reality um, it isn't. But it is certainly the reality um, that that life in New York has become more dangerous with regard to disorder and crime than it was two years ago, three years ago. Um, and it's the trends are not in a good direction. Um, and in particular, on the subway. Um, and in fact, even this current administration recognized that there is a very worrying spike in subway violence, which is why they have actually taken the step of putting more cops on the subway, which seems to be helping somewhat with some of the violence. Nevertheless, every time you take the subway, you are trapped in an enclosed space uh, with other people, some of whom are uh, crazy and violent and mean you harm. Um, so just one such case happened uh, last week uh, with um, Jordan Neely. Mr. Neely was a 30-year-old um, homeless person. Uh, the, the news, of course, is is using the, the new phrase, Michael Jackson in, uh, in impersonator, to describe him, right? Um, uh, that is true. He was a Michael Jackson impersonator several years ago, but those who have observed him, and he was a known quantity, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, observed that he was not actually doing that anymore. He was declining into one of two things, either uh, drug-induced or just sheer um, mental illness-induced downward spiral. He had been violent in the past. He had, uh, now I'm seeing conflicting reportings, anywhere from 42 to 44 prior arrests, four of which were for assault. Um, he had pushed a woman towards the, the tracks in the subway, fortunately did not succeed. Um, the latest warrant out for his arrest was for felony assault for punching a 67-year-old woman uh, in her face, um, doing quite a bit of, of damage to her, unfortunately. Um, and I give you all of this background because when he was on the subway, uh, he was apparently screaming and threatening uh, people on the subway, but he had not yet actually become violent. Uh, a, a young Marine, um, actually between active tours, uh, put him in a chokehold to uh, subdue him, not, he says, not to attempt to kill him, um, to subdue him. Uh, he was helped in this task by two other men in the subway car. Um, and, and very notable on the video, you don't hear a single person in the subway car say, get off him, you know, um, let him go, right? Uh, it seems that 
the subway car was quite united in the perception of the threat from uh, from Jordan Neely. So um, unfortunately, though, by the time uh, the police got there and transported him to a hospital, he had died and the coroner has ruled the death a homicide, which is uh, very clearly does not imply murder, right? Just that he died from as a result of this interaction, according to the coroner, although we're still waiting for the talk screen to get back. Um, so those are kind of the, the background facts. Um, and initially, I thought this was definitely going to be a replay of the Bernie Getz case from 1984, um, except worse, because in all cultural measures, of course, as we cover every year on this program, or every week on this program, rather, uh, by all cultural measures, we have gotten worse, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I've become slightly more optimistic. There have been protests, um, and certainly the all the usual suspects from the New York Times to AOC are attempting to turn this into a racial incident. Um, I, I believe one of the squad called it a lynching, right, because the Marine is white and uh, Neely is black. Uh, but actually, the response has been quite muted. Um and and it doesn't seem like it's actually – I see all the people trying to make it into the new summer of Floyd. Um but I'm not really seeing the response that that incident garnered, um, even here in New York City. Yes, there have been protests and arrests at those protests, but um, I don't don't feel the same sort of simmering anger here, in part um, similarly to the Getz case. I think the average person in this city, uh, AOC aside, is actually extremely fed up with having to deal with schizophrenic and potentially violent uh, madmen in enclosed spaces on the subway. Um, there is just to put in my opinion, and then I'll kick it out to the rest of you. Um, the, the real culprit here is, of course, uh, progressive policies in, in New York and in other cities that allow people who are mentally ill, unstable, and violent repeatedly um, out on the street. Neely should not be dead because he shouldn't have never she should have never been on that subway car with his record. He was on he was known to all of the services. By the way, New York spends 30,000 per homeless person per year on services for the homeless. He was known. This guy was known to all of those homeless organizations. He was on a so-called top 50 list of people who uh, desperately needed help. He was for, forcibly committed briefly, but then let out on his own recognizance to continue taking his meds. Um, every step of the way, we see not a system that had him, quote unquote, slip through the cracks, but rather a system that has made the conscious choice to have a revolving door um, and to deal with serious mental illness as opposed to what the left is always talking about, you know, uh, in, in terms of, of mental services and mental illness. Serious mental illness breaks with reality, schizophrenia, this type of, of um, very dangerous mental illness that makes you a danger to yourself as well as to others has chosen uh, to allow these people to continue to live and do drugs uh, on the street where they can menace themselves and, and others on the street. Um, that is the story here. And that's the real culprit here. Um, not this brave Marine who correctly, almost certainly correctly and reasonably, and certainly reasonably uh, interpreted that this guy actually was um, not just going to scream and flail about, but was potentially going to be violent and move to protect himself and others on, on that subway car. A just society, uh, which we all know we no longer live in, but a just society does not force ordinary people during the course of their commutes to determine the levels of violence and schizophrenia in, in raving lunatics and make a guess as to whether this one is the one who will actually harm them or not. But um, I'm sorry, with that, I've taken way too much time and I'll, I'll kick it out to the rest of you. Yeah, so I, I'd love to jump in. Um, I, I, I share much of your take, uh, Inez, but um, there's some parts where, where I would differ. Really quickly, I'll say 
one, I grew up in New York. I spent over three hours a day on public transportation going to and from school um, from eighth to 12th grade. So, you know, been on the train, you know, countless times. I've, I've seen, um, you know, homeless people on the train, you know, schizophrenics, people yelling, screaming, doing all sorts of stuff. It, it, it in some ways becomes part of New York City public transportation culture, which is a, you know, a sad commentary on, on the way of life there. Um, and, I, and I also, I, I share your, your perspective as, as it relates to um, allowing lawlessness to take root and then some people being surprised when, when you get nothing but disorder. Um, so, so I understand both of those positions, but there's, but there's still a part of me that, that says, you know, that there are other ways to potentially handle a situation like this. And, and I think the part that really sticks in my crawl is that um, the, the Marine approached Neely from behind. And this, it may seem like a small detail to some people, but if you put your arms around a person, whether you call it a headlock, a chokehold, whatever term you, you excuse me, um, you use for it, yes, you're gonna have somebody that flails and kicks around and you're gonna need multiple people to, to restrain them. Um, if it would have been slightly different if, if, if the people on the train said, hey, hey man, chill out, you know, or shut up or whatever. But um, I, there's, there's a part of me that, I don't know, uh, it's, it's hard to digest the part of it where it's, it's uh, an engagement from, from behind. And again, I know that may seem like a small detail to some people, but at the end of the day, this young man um, lost his life, tragically, of course. Um, and I saw certain interact, I saw certain responses online that, um, in some respects, in my in my estimation, sort of diminish the the humanity that's at play here. Um, and and I wrote in a piece in the Blaze, and I'll and I'll you know finish off here that um, Tucker Carlson's recently revealed text where he talked about that the sort of tribal impulse to want to see his enemies get their comeuppance. Uh, I thought was actually very instructive for this particular incident. Because uh, my sense is that a, a lot of the reaction is fueled um, by tribalism on, on both sides. I think if you switched out the identities and, and you concocted a situation where um, it was people where that conservatives would feel a little bit more sympathetic towards, um, who was deemed a threat or aggressive and had not physically harmed someone, uh, I, I think some of us would have uh, different perspectives on it. So I'll say that. And, and, and again, I completely agree with the position that the subways have become um, a place of lawlessness. A woman named Elizabeth Gomes was viciously attacked in the Queen subway, lost her eye, um, I think, last year. Uh, people have been pushed on the train tracks, have feces smeared on them. Uh, one lady in the Bronx even took to chaining herself to a subway column um, before the train pulled up because of this. So um, there's, it's sad all around, and I think, you know, there's some serious soul searching that, that Gothamites need to do um, with respect to these types of situations. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be super quick because we're real short on time on this segment. I, I agree with Inez's bottom line take. This is something that I have been beating for a while now, which is that this, this country desperately, desperately needs to revisit the its 1960s, 1970s era reforms when it comes to the liberalization of institutional commitment. I mean, someone like 
The tragedy is that Jordan Neely would be alive if society had treated someone like Jordan Neely the way that he deserved to be treated, which was someone with this level of mental illness simply should not be operating in society. And we knew that. I mean, the fact that that he was on the New York City like top 50 people to watch list, that is the tragedy. It's like we literally knew him by his name, by his identity as someone who desperately needed help. And because society has just imbibed all these various liberal bromides about kind of the inherent dignity of the homeless and how they can't be committed, whatever, this was the tragic result. Um, and, and, you know, I, I will I certainly echo Delano's kind of emphasis on the humanity here as well. Um, you know, I think some people on the other side ha have definitely taken this a little far as well. It's just a very disturbing story. But my kind of public policy takeaway, which Inez, I think, uh, underscored was kind of the revisiting of institutional commitment. Yeah, the, the people on the train should have been put should not have been put in that position and Jordan Neely himself should not have been put in that position and there are more people slipping through the cracks of our society because of an insane ideology that is counterintuitive and backwards that can only be justified in a total postmodern post truth society. Um, and that's where we are, you know, the 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 Marine is really, uh, frankly, the last um, of the dominoes to fall that had to get to where we got. Um, and so, uh, you you know, as we can Monday morning quarterback and we can look at, you know, what could have been done differently on a crowded subway train. The bottom line is we, we can all agree that we got there um, because of unfortunate circumstances and because the left monopolized uh, criminal justice reform and crime discourse in the country for a really long time. And it's making everyone unsafe, whether you're a passenger or uh, the, the victim perpetrator in this case, uh, the same. Delano, I'll toss it over to you. Sure. So I, I, I really want to touch on something that I see sort of ascending in, on the online space, which is center right men, someone, you know, describe themselves as conservative, who are promoting um, an anti-marriage, anti-family narrative um, to the people who follow them. So the, the most recent example of this is uh, from a Twitter account from someone named Rollo Tomasi, who says, the quickest path to becoming a high value man. One, do not get married. Two, avoid family creation. Three, vasectomy in your 20s. Four, lift consistently. Five, eliminate all sedations. Six, learn game and networking. Seven, play to your strengths, build wealth. And eight, resist eating up on your, easing up on your focus. Um, I've, I've seen similar things. I mean, this sounds a lot like, you know, someone like Andrew Tate, but Andrew Tate, He's an online personality. He's a lot younger than than I believe Raul Tomasi is, and I'm I'm concerned that this mess that this is the message that we're sending to young men. Um, you know, we talked in the last segment about at least part of this. You know, the the, the nearly situation, particularly as it relates to the Marine, is are, are we training young men to run away from um, their their instincts towards bravery? Uh, and I think selling young men on on a message that um avoiding marriage and family including a vasectomy in your 20s is the way to be a high value you know giga chad um is exactly the wrong message that, that guys need to be hearing right now so um i've responded to a few of these people my position is always the same it's like you know if you if you if you are a king with no queen and no heirs you're just a rich man in a house uh, and i think this is the type of message that's being pushed out in some online circles, I'm not sure the extent to which is resonating, but it is something that I think that conservatives should be concerned about. Because if you have um, 
you know, radical feminists on the left telling women to avoid marriage because it's an oppressive trap and a tool of the patriarchy. And then you have um, radical men on the right telling young men to avoid marriage um, because it's a trap uh, and it's a tool of the matriarchy and a corrupt, you know, sort of divorce and, and family court system. Um, that does not bode well for the future of uh, society um, or the future of, of the world. So with that, I'll, I'll toss it out to the rest of the group. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting point, and I'm I'm not like incredibly worried that this is sweeping the like young conservative movement, but I do think it's sort of the logical conclusion of um, you know it's it's like getting into Nietzsche, you know it's it's you know when the, when we tear everything down, young men are going to believe that it's justified and righteous that you become your own god. Um, that is the only purpose is to to sort of become your master of the universe, and that means eschewing all of the traditions that knit social fabric together. Um, and children are obviously an important part of that. You are not a response. It's, it's one of those things that you know pushes you to be. Um, I'm speaking as a, a childless person, of course, but it, it pushes you to be a more um, invested in the future of humanity, in the future of your uh, local community, in the future of your family. Um, it's it is the civilizing feature. It is how we progress as a species. Um, and so, no, maybe it's not best for you as an individual. But that's what this really gets to at the end of the day: is that we have uh, stripped away all of the parts of society so that people believe what is righteous and what is manly is this in, is just intense individualism. Um, and that's the fault of just the, the kind of nihilistic worldview that we pushed on everybody for a long time. So, um, you know, it's, it's the, the obvious logical conclusion. I worry about it infecting everyone, um, you know, whether you're right or left. I think we're definitely going to see it crop up on the right because there are young men who are looking for purpose in every kind of political philosophy right now, whether that's uh, far left or far right, they're looking for purpose in it. Uh, you know, we can talk about all the male feminists that find purpose in it on the left. Um, so I do expect it to come up more often, but that said, I think it's a, a much going to be a much broader, deeper societal problem uh, with men in the years to come, specifically with Gen Z men, uh, I think we're really starting to see it manifest. So it's it's very much something to pay attention to. Um, so I have a few points here. I, I, I agree that it's a logical consequence of the atomization. And I, I agree um, with everything that Emily said, uh, and, and actually about this. But um, I do want to make another brief point. It is also the logical consequence of policy choices and family law. That we've made. Um, we, we we have a legal structure around marriage and divorce and family um, that that does disadvantage men quite severely um, in certain instances. So I think that's part of where a lot of the fire from this comes from to the extent it's like kind of two groups. It's the Nietzschean young uh, folks in their early 20s. Um, and then the other half of this, I think, is a lot of divorced dads who have been really uh treated unfairly um by by the court system and i think that adds a lot of legitimacy and and sort of fire to that position um sort of on a, a ten thousand foot level response right um we talk about i think we have talked about the long house here i feel like that's part of the the response here um but it's important to remember that it's not actually a matriarchy it's it's a gynocracy 
right? Um, there, there is something important about recognizing the complementarity of men and women that is, I think, being lost in some of this discourse. Um, that being said, I think kind of the, the overly sort of tra- traditional conservative response sometimes misses something corresponding on on the other side, and that's to Emily's sort of Nietzschean, <laughs> Nietzschean point, um, that our current modern society provides very few uh, opportunities for glory for young men. Um, we, we live in a bureaucratic economy uh, where a lot of opportunities financially are uh, require a certain kind of um, personality type of knuckling under in, in a bureaucracy and, and a certain kind of cooperation um, that is feminine and not necessarily in a bad way uh, when applied correctly. I think these are complementary sort of um, values and instincts, but there is a place for uh, sort of masculine virtues as well. And I, I think there we have lost a lot of the places for men to seek glory. Um, and I think that that, I think that what we're seeing with, with what um, Delano brought up with these kinds of tweets about like, we don't need women, right? Um, we can, we can go our own way. We don't need women. Um, I think it comes from one, that lack of outlets for a lot of the masculine virtues or lack of, of honors in society for those virtues. Um, but also, uh, you know, look, at the, at the end of the day, um, there, the war between the sexes can't really go on forever if there is going to be a future for the human race, right? Um, and and some of this is a, a bit of, it, it seems to me to be the flip side of, I mean, um, Delano said this is the flip side of sort of a bitter feminist left. Um, I think it is that in a different way as well, which is, you know, a lot of uh, feminism seems to be bitterness at men for desiring certain attributes in women, um, like youth and fertility and beauty. Uh, on the flip side, it seems like a lot of, no, I don't even want to say a lot, but there's a certain corner of sort of the right wing um, manosphere or whatever that seems to resent women for the things that they bring to the table and the things that they desire. Um, and I think that that's equally immature. And as I said, at the end, uh, you know, the war can't go on forever if there's going to be a future. So so I'm happy that Emily brought up Nietzsche because, I mean, that definitely steals my thunder a little bit. I mean, this is kind of Delano helpfully shining a spotlight on the anthropological pitfalls of kind of the BAP physiognomy at all costs, gym rat wing of the right. And this has been kind of a silent kind of um, boiling kind of tension that has been simmering, I think, for a few years now between kind of um, uh, some in kind of the NatCon sphere and some in kind of the the true more dissident element of kind of the gym rat, right? And I think that 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 this is a good time to try to kind of look at that and kind of soberly analyze that and, um, you know, try to just like discuss what paths there might be towards uh, reconciling these differences. But look, I mean, from a very basic worldview, okay, if you are talking about kind of individualism as the be all end all, you are valorizing vasectomies, for God's sake, in your 20s, um, you have some serious soul searching to do. Um, I mean, if I could, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, you are a profound loser. You are literally a loser. And that is like a kindergarten juvenile insult, but you are a loser. If you are the kind of person who is forswearing procreation, who is forswearing family formation, who is forswearing 
anything remotely resembling kind of your your obligation, your duty to pass down your intergenerational customs, your traits, your nation, your faith in God, your way of life, your very vitality and your livelihood, you are an absolute loser. And it makes me think to a certain extent of someone who I didn't necessarily expect to kind of invoke on today's show, but the infamous uh, white supremacist Jew hater Nick Fuentes, who is sometimes fond of talking about his own kind of forswearing of dating. And, and he has basically said that, you know, he's basically had his own take on a kind of the old school kind of playground. Oh, chicks are for, you know, word that I will not say, kind of a, an anti-homosexual pejorative. Um, so that's kind of really what I'm hearing here. Um, it's bad. It's wrong. It is totally anathema, I think, to the National Conservatism Project. It's very much anathema to kind of the Hungarian Conservatism Project, which I will talk about a little bit in my own segment. But um, I think that this is very toxic, bad stuff. And I'm, ha I'm happy that Delano is sharing a spotlight on it. All right, with that, we are going to make a really hard pivot to the debt ceiling. <laughs> um, it's a, an ongoing negotiation. Actually, as we talk about this today, uh, Kevin McCarthy and President Biden, they, they may actually be meeting like literally as we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, but we continue to, to follow the story because it has implications for uh, the Republican Party. It obviously has major implications for the country in general. Um, but there are a couple of things I want to just tease out that have happened in the last week. One, it is remarkable that Kevin McCarthy got his conference behind a debt ceiling bill. It has about $5 trillion worth of cut in agreement for raising the debt ceiling $1.5 trillion. Okay. So the fact that this is all cuts to all kinds of things, student loan uh, re repayment uh, or student loan forgiveness. Um, then it goes into what else? Green energy tax credits, all this kind of ticky tack stuff that they cobbled together to get $4.8 trillion worth of cuts for. Kevin McCarthy manages to get his conference behind that bill. If he were a Democrat, he would have glowing profiles they would be writing about what kind of sunglasses and coats that he wears like they did with nancy pelosi and would be dubbed uh what did pelosi call herself a, a master legislator something like that but the media would surely bestow such a title upon kevin mccarthy himself uh because when you have a conference that divided uh, to be able to get them together when the stakes aren't even that high with just the bill itself um to to bridge the sort of the, the Freedom Caucus wing that obviously initially impeded McCarthy's ability even to, to be speaker with that very long balloting process. Uh, so that's two big wins for Kevin McCarthy just tactically over the course of uh, this, this early like half year, not even half year of the legislative session or of this Congress. And um, on that note, Mitch McConnell was out of the Senate due to an injury that he sustained uh, for, for weeks. So he was... MIA in these negotiate negotiations, understandably so. He was recovering, and we're obviously glad that he recovered. Um, kind of a passing of the baton to Kevin McCarthy, not a not a willing passing of the baton, but very interesting that McCarthy stepped successfully into that power vacuum. Um, Mike Lee united a just like 43 senators uh, behind his, what, what was it actually? Let me get the right number here. Um, he, he unites all of these senators behind a letter um, yeah, 40, all 43, um, yeah, 43 Republican senators signed a letter by Mike Lee last week uh, saying that they will only vote to raise the debt ceiling with conditions. Biden has said that's an impasse. I'm only going to do a clean debt ceiling 
bill. Boom. Because any of his agenda is on the table as soon as you add conditions. He's going to have to take a, a, a hit on his agenda. He knows that if there are conditions. So that you get 43 Republican senators on that list, that you have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema uh, potentially siding with Republicans on this, it is a huge problem for the Biden administration, which is now going to have to negotiate over its agenda. And that doesn't mean that Kevin McCarthy isn't going to run into some troubles. It doesn't mean Republicans aren't going to be the ones that look silly when this all happens, because the media will always, always cast Republicans as obstructionists, um, even if we are drowning in debt, even if they have good reasons for asking for cuts, even if everything is reasonable. Doesn't matter. The media is going to side with the Democrats and with the Biden administration. So I'm not saying this is going to be a political win for Republicans, but I am saying uh, tactically, strategically, it's going very well for Republicans. And the uh, window for them, for the, for the Biden administration, is really narrowing for them to negotiate on this. So let me kick it open to the group. So I, I mean, I don't have like a like a huge take on this. I mean, like. The rest of you and like probably a lot of others who are professionally in this space, I get all my like morning political playbook newsletters whenever and I'll be totally honest with you, my eyes tend to gloss over when it gets to the various kind of machinations and like the inevitable kind of game of chicken that, you know, in, in kind of a classic kind of game theory sense always is kind of the debt ceiling fight. And it kind of gives me like a nice throwback to the Tea Party era and the shutdown and Boehner and sequestration. You remember that word? That was a word from from like, uh, what, 12 years ago now. Um, I guess my broader kind of conceptual objection uh, to a lot of this, I mean, to be clear, uh, the national debt is is obviously is, is obviously a, a, a problem, um, it, and there is no foreseeable path whatsoever towards remedying that, short of some sort of uh, you know days, just like act of God, basically, right? I mean, like that, that's basically that's that's effectively the point that we're at. So, I you know, I, from my perspective, I can't help but but, but kind of cringe a little bit when I see kind of the revival of kind of this Tea Party era kind of, you know, slash the deficit, slash the debt style of political gamesmanship and game of chicken, it's fundamentally loser politics. Um, it is a losing strategy. Um, obviously, the media would, you know, will blame Republicans for anything whatsoever that happens to the credit rating, to the stock market, blah, blah, blah. We're used to that by now. Um, but these are just, this is just not winning terrain. This is not winning terrain for Republicans and conservatives to engage upon. Rather, our winning terrain right now um, is, uh, to an extent, I mean, the cultural and civilizational issues that we discuss on this podcast week in and week out, and to an extent, it definitely is on other kind of economic issues, but I would prefer a, a focus on some very different kind of economic issues, the likes of which our friend Doran Cass and the American Compass crew like to kind of highlight things of that nature there. The southern border is certainly a major winning issue, I think, for conservatives right now. Crime, I mean, the litany and the list goes on. But I, I, I am not particularly enthused or inspired by kind of this momentary revival of kind of deficit hawkishness, which I certainly do not think represents kind of the best path forward for the Republican Party. Um, you know, the the great ancient Chinese military general uh, Sun Tzu, this is actually one of Senator Ted Cruz's very famous quotes. He loves, he's very fond of quoting Sun Tzu. He would actually do so in his oral arguments to the Supreme Court back when he was Texas Solicitor General. The ancient kind of Chinese historian or military strategist Sun Tzu famously said that a battle is won before it is fought. It is won on, based on the terrain on which it is fought. 
And this is fundamentally losing terrain, period, full stop, end of story. Um, so I guess I slightly disagree, not with your assessment, perhaps, of the politics involved, maybe. Um, but I think we underestimate how much of the cultural stuff um, that we talk about every day uh, or every week here, um, how much our opponents are just straight up funded by the federal budget. Um, and I think there are some cuts uh, here that are quite important. For example, there's some uh, – it's a rollback of, of Biden's student loan plan. Probably won't matter because that particular plan will be gutted. But um, I think this could be fought in in a way that is very connected uh, to the more – sort of. I, I agree that, that there are more existential issues facing America than the debt limit. Um, that is, unless this is the moment – where we're playing musical chairs and it falls on our heads, but let's let's assume that that's not the case, just as it wasn't the case um, in the Tea Party era. Um, let's assume for a moment that's not the case. I, I I still think I think there are there are ways and ways to fight this. That there are millions and billions of dollars actually uh, in the federal government that go directly to fund our cultural opponents, um, and I think there's a way to, to have that fight. The only other comment I have on all of this is um, I think this this shows. I think potentially that the power relations within the Republican Party are important here. The fact that McCarthy could pass uh, this bill, um, the fact that the um, sort of right wing of his caucus has more power because of the speakership fights um, earlier uh, that we covered here uh, months ago. I, I think those are important uh, sort of dynamics for any future battle within the Republican Party. Um, and I think those very well may turn out to be important. And this is the first time we're really seeing them get flexed, right? Um, I think the the folks that we would like to see have a bigger voice in the Republican Party um, probably are having a more serious seat at the table and more uh, negotiating power within the Republican Party now. And we're seeing that this is the first result of that. So it's not that I think this particular fight is all-encompassing or as important um, as perhaps some do. Um, but I do think those those power dynamics are probably important going forward uh, for any any one of the fights that we would want to pick up where the establishment Republican Party has been a complete failure. So I, I don't have a ton to add here. Um, I just, my thought as a layperson is two things. One, are there any countries that have their national debt under control, right? I'm not saying they operate in the black per se, but um, where the sort of debt to GDP ratio is, you know, reasonable. And then two, what would a plan, sort of a multi-generational plan to get us to that point actually look like? And is there anyone who could could or would propose that? I, I don't know. Um, this is not an issue that I follow particularly closely. Um, it was interesting that, you know, the press secretary brought up, you know, that you, if you have bills, you have to pay them and was immediately dunked on online by people who saying, oh, what about student loans? Um, but I'm, I'm just thinking about sort of long terms as a structural matter for the United States. Is, is, there, any, is there anyone who has or will um, present a plan um, to get us out of this uh, situation? So that, that's the sort of main takeaway that I, that I have on this one. Fair enough. All right, Josh, tell us, give us, give us your uh, breakdown of your fascist gathering in Budapest. <laughs> Sorry, no, that, that was actually quite funny. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, look, I mean, like the all the longtime listeners of this show will, um, you know, recall that I was actually just in Hungary a little over a year ago. I spoke at a conference at that time last February for MCC Matthias Corvinas Collegium. Um, I was back this time for a panel for CPAC Hungary. It's the second annual CPAC Hungary. Uh, it was going to be at the last CPAC Hungary. Then they had to reschedule it because of the, the war in Ukraine. Couldn't make the rescheduled date. Now they're here nor there. It was great to be back for this particular time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's worth, I think, kind of just talking a little bit about kind of why many have this um, uh, obsession would be far too strong of a word, but kind of infatuation, perhaps, is kind of kind of a longing from afar um, for for Prime Minister Orban, his Fidesz party, and certain elements of kind of the national conservative national populist elements of Hungary. And for that, for that matter, um, certainly also kind of in, in, in other parts of Europe, especially kind of Central and Eastern Europe, the erstwhile Iron Curtain areas as well there. Um, so this was an interesting conference, right? I mean, like it was a it was a mix uh, of Americans um, and, and Europeans. So I, I spoke on a panel about, about uh, free speech and big tech. Um, it was two Americans and two Europeans on the panel, including um, the moderator. And uh, you, you know, a few kind of themes kind of percolate to the top of my mind. So. Um, you know, a lot of just general Europeans, I mean, I talked to kind of MEPs, members of European Parliament from the Netherlands, from Spain, uh, various other countries as well. I, I, was, I was talking with a, a young Spanish activist, an activist for the, for the Vox Party there, which is kind of the, the national conservative national populist party in Spain. And we and he kind of asked this interesting question. He was like, Josh, what what is it that can actually like unite European conservatives, right? Like, like, what is a what? What is a conservative in Spain, Italy, Germany, Sweden, Poland, whatever? Like, what? What do they share in common? And it's a, it's a very good question, right? Because I mean, like, these are very distinct cultures with distinct customs, religion, languages. I mean, all the things the national conservatives hold dear. And it's kind of hard to answer that question with anything authoritative, except for like two things that kind of come to mind. And those two things that come to mind, I think, kind of underscore certain elements of the broader national conservatism project, which is that I think the two things that I immediately thought of that can like tie together nationalists, conservatives, and populists from various different European countries is one, actual nationalism, which obviously demands kind of a similar stance towards the European Union and kind of the liberal hegemony that Brussels uh, usually in cahoots with Frankfurt and Berlin are able to kind of impose upon the entire European continent. And then the other thing that I think tie, would tie a lot of European conservatives together, uh, it, it, you know, is a shared sense of Christendom and, and, and Christianity as well. And look, Hungary in particular, Hungary is not unique. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively small country. It's, it's only about 10 million people. But it has stood out because Prime Minister Orban, who I, I've met numerous times now, and just to kind of reiterate my impressions from the first time I met him, is very far from the caricature uh, that the MSNBC and New York Times talking head crowd likes to, to depict him as. This is a man who studied uh, for a time at Oxford. He's He literally dedicates one day a week, um, I can't remember if it's Saturdays or Sundays, to just reading. And he's not necessarily reading kind of Twitter sound bites. He's, he's like reading like real stuff. I mean, to kind of quote uh, from Adrian Vermeule, uh, Victor Orban has done the reading. Um, and, and and he's also just like very congenial, like he always answers every single question without pausing. He, he's very kind of non-politician-like. But what, what Hungary has done most fundamentally, and our friend Chris Rufo, I think, got, got a really nice glimpse of this firsthand when he when he just spent roughly a month there or so on a, on a Dan, Danube Institute fellowship, what, what, what the Hungarian right has been able to do, and this is what I think what is most interesting from my perspective about that country in particular, is they have actually largely succeeded on the 
Rufo uh, DeSantis-esque uh, mission of recapturing institutions, of forming new institutions that have been viable and then recapturing institutions that have been lost to the opposition. So if you look at kind of the broader kind of infrastructure of the Hungarian right from the political scene to the universities, to think tanks, the media outlets, they, they really have achieved kind of cultural dominance. And that is in large part why the Fidesz party, Orban's party has been in power now for, for well over a decade. Um, to be clear, I mean, there is freedom of the press, many of kind of the leading media organs in Budapest, which is the only kind of liberal enclave at this point in the entire country. Many of the, the leading newspapers there are liberal, are anti-Orban, but at a certain level, a lot of kind of the cultural kind of economic geopolitical power centers have really been captured. And uh, but it's a, it, for, from that perspective, it's just a very kind of interesting, um, I think, lens into into a certain kind of different path forward. And speaking of different paths forward, one other thing that I think Hungary has become really well known as in, in, in certain kind of circles of the American right um, is its strong, strong emphasis on, on, on natalism, pro-family policies, on really kind of structuring their entire tax code when it comes to property, property taxes, marital incentives. I mean, they've really engineered their entire tax code to incentivizing family formation. It's such a wonderful rebuke to kind of the brute nihilism that Delano kind of um, highlighted in, in his segment earlier. And we actually had the president of Hungary, Katalin Novak, who addressed us at our gala on Thursday evening, kind of going through the litany of pro-family policies. Gladden Papin has written voluminously on this. I had Gladden on my Newsweek podcast this week to discuss it. Shameless plug there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's basically the Hungary thing. It, it is it is kind of a real life experiment in kind of conservative governance oriented towards the common good that tends to eschew various liberal bromides when it comes to kind of neoliberal internationalism or kind of absolutist laissez-faire on the domestic sphere. So that's basically it. Um, uh, you know, I'm not an apologist for this country or anything, I, I mean, but I've enjoyed visiting, I've enjoyed speaking there, and I do think that there are lessons to be learned. So ha happy to open up whatever reactions or, or thoughts you guys have. I like the left's conspiratorial <clears throat> um, reaction every time there's like a CPAC Hungary or, or something like that. Uh, I believe Josh was uh, dubbed a dangerous individual. Um, <laughs> I'm probably paraphrasing like some uh, weird leftist blog that uh, thought it was a bad idea. But uh, all that is to say, it's a strange conspiracy that conservatives are colluding um, to resurrect fascism because people are living in this com this completely upended century. Um, there's a great Walter Russell Mead piece that I would uh, commend everyone to read in Tablet Magazine that's called You Are Not Destined to Live in Quiet Times. It ran on Monday. Um, so, so that it, it's surprising to the left and the media that people, um, you know, even with totally, I would say, different ideological frameworks, you know, the, the ideological, the basic ideological framework of a lot of European uh, social democracies, smaller countries with more homogenous populations is obviously completely different than the American left, right? And so um, that people in this very much not quiet century, um, where life is changing at a pace that nobody, let alone their physical bodies, uh, but their, their sort of emotional beings uh, can keep track of would would uh, talk to each other about maybe some ideas to to help 
humanity flourish, that Christians um, across continents would get together and, and have those say, we, we, sh we share some common goals. Let's talk about uh, what works and what doesn't, what's just and what's unjust um, is just like insane. Um, and I think it's also a positive sign overall that American conservatism has broadened its horizons, that there's an out of the box, I think a push to, to be a little bit more out of the uh, out of the box in the mentality um, that we bring to the, the kind of cultural, key cultural questions, key economic questions uh, that are on the table. So uh, I'm always interested to hear, um, you know, from, from folks who have gone over and, and talked to people over there. Um, and I think it's, it's worth that collusion, uh, to borrow a word from the media. Yeah, I guess my, my only thoughts on this are, are um, I see sort of a common thread uh, in the way that Hungary is covered, Poland is covered, Israel, um, a lot of these sort of fundamentally domestic uh, disagreements within some of these countries um, are covered as anti-democratic, uh, as though and it really does underscore, and I wish Ben were here to to double underscore this, but it really does underscore that the sort of our democracy, they they really mean the our part, right? Um, it's it's democracy until uh, that democracy yields outcomes that are contrary um, to some of the the sort of cultural prop propositions, let's can call them neoliberal propositions, um, that have become default. And it's funny because they really only have become default, uh, even in America in, in the last 30 years. And anything that sort of, um, and certainly uh, I wouldn't place it any farther back than the 60s, right? So um, in, in order to think that Hungary is anti-democratic, mm -hmm. one has to think that most of the history of the United States and every uh, so-called mm -hmm. free country in, in the world, uh, most of the history uh, of those countries is anti-democratic. Um, that in fact, democracy only came into being right uh mm -hmm. at 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 earliest in 1968 mm -hmm. um and i think this is a, a very revealing view it shows how um how sort of uh those words like democracy or even liberalism have been uh claimed by a very small sort of uh faction uh, and i hear i'm speaking historically not in terms of of numerically now but a small sort of faction of history and um in terms of the ways that man and even free men can arrange their affairs um, as fellow citizens. Uh, and, and there really seems to be an inability to legitimize uh, any alternative arrangements of those affairs other than sort of the, the standard uh, neoliberal culturally woke um, you know, proposition that's being advanced that not coincidentally is actually turns out to be quite unpopular when actually put to a democratic, a real democratic test. Um, and I, I think that that's probably the most important lesson for us in America from the way that what, what Hungary is doing um, is is this making this very clear that, in fact, um, when they say anti-democratic, they just mean a people who votes um, or elects leaders that uh, are willing to challenge that that consensus. Um, no, I, I just I, I, I th when I think about Hungary, I think about, you know, th their social policies that incentivize um, family formation and and actually recently in the states a, a Texas lawmaker named Brian Slayton proposed a, a bill that seems sounds very much Hungarian in nature right where he said parents with four kids will qualify for a 40 percent property tax discount and if they go all the way up to 10 kids then their house will be tax-free 
Um, that that's the type of um, policy making and the type of incentive structure that I think more conservatives will be open to in years to come. And then on the flip side, you know, because one of the things that Hungary does, and I I got a chance to moderate a panel with uh, Balash Orban a couple of weeks ago at Heritage's uh, 50th anniversary. Um, you know, they are they are very open in terms of protecting children from LGBT propaganda and content in a way that would make even a lot of people on the right in America very much uncomfortable. And I think about, you know, Nikki Haley, who says that she's running for president, who recently said, Disney, you know, I'd, I'd love to take, you know, 70,000 jobs if you want to leave Florida. And, and much of the response to her is you, you, you clearly don't know what time it is. So yes, you, you may get the jobs and, and South Carolinians you know, may, may have some improved economic prospects, but at what cost? Um, and I think that there's still some conservatives who don't understand that there are more ways to impose uh, tyranny on a people than, than through big government. Uh, and when corporations um, weigh in on political matters, um, when, when they, you know, as I, as I said, propagandize young, our, our children, um, when, when they promote antinatalism, when they, when they invest more in abortions for, for their female workforce than maternal leave, um, you, you get the types of things that we're experiencing here in the West. And, and Hungary seems to not be interested in going down that path at all. All right, I'll go around the room for final thoughts. I was going to pick off actually where you left off on the last segment, which is kind of this, this broader kind of, you know, the way that the MSM and kind of all the usual suspects from the from the press to the universities to the political leadership kind of tend to depict the battles in countries like Poland, Hungary, uh, Israel, uh, Brazil, perhaps was to a slightly lesser extent. And, you know, I, I mean, fundamentally, it is the same exact issue every single time it, it, that's really going on in all of these countries. And it just underscores, kind of, I think, kind of the vitality and indeed kind of the the importance, the kind of borderline existential importance, I think, of the National Conservatism Project. And the fault lines of, of, that, of that battle in all of these countries is fundamentally nationalism versus liberal globalism. I mean, I mean that, that is the battle that is happening in each and every one of these countries, the battle that has, that has been raging in Israel for the past few months over judicial reform, which I've discussed on this show, which is in, in somewhat of kind of a Mexican standoff situation right now, it's unclear at best what will emerge from that, but that, that fight all along has just been one proxy for this fight, where the Netanyahu coalition has been on the, on the side of nationalism and kind of the judicial supremacy, juristocracy crowd has been on the side of kind of liberal hegemony, kind of, this, kind of the, the vindication and, and the supremacy of European Union-funded NGOs, uh, you know, the U.S. State Department and all of that. Exact same thing in Hungary. I mean, all that the Hungarian right is fundamentally interested in doing is really what Delano just talked about, which is which is passing on kind of um, you know their language, their customs, their tradition, and above all else, their family from one generation to the next, and to shield it from the pernicious and insidious effects and byproducts of Brussels, Berlin, Washington D.C., the United Nations, just all of the usual kind of globalist liberal. Um, for forces out there. And, you know, it is no, it is no accident, um, therefore, that kind of George Soros has chosen to kind of focus his ire on Israel and Hungary, uh, above, above, perhaps all other countries, except, except for the US. Now, he is Hungarian by birth, and he is, uh, 
ethnically, I guess, Jewish, technically. He's, he's halakhically Jewish, I believe, no matter how much he may detest his own Jewishness. But um, so, but, but, but that aside, I guess one reason why he chooses to focus on Hungary and Israel above all else except for the U.S. is that those are two instances where the forces of nationalism, traditionalism, religion, and so forth have actually fought back against global liberal hegemony. And, you know, uh, like I said, it's been nice to, to, to go to Hungary over the past couple of years, um, you know, and good and good for CPAC, by the way, very good for CPAC um, for kind of just kind of stepping in there, um, you know, and, and basically just flipping two middle fingers to the establishment that that would otherwise excoriate Central and Eastern Europe as full of kind of backwater bigots. So good for CPAC as well for kind of planting a flag there in the middle of the European continent. Um, I want to return to the Jordan Neely subject, and and perhaps um, Delano will also uh, give me a rebuttal again. But um, in terms of of what uh, he said in the beginning of the episode, I think uh, the behind grab hold is something you do when you're not actually trying to have a fight with someone. You're trying to restrain someone who's insane, right? It's not like, uh, you know, somebody offends and you confront them and you have... uh, perhaps outdated language in our, our modern era. And that's part of the problem. You can't have like an honorable fight, right? Um, mm-hmm. This isn't what that is. Uh, it's trying to guess when somebody who's not in touch with his surroundings or reality at all is going to uh, be violent towards other people. Um, and it seems pretty clear to me. Now, of course, we weren't, none of us were on that subway car. Um, and of course, I mean, it's possible for this to become a, a tribal uh, incident. And in fact, I think it is, but I guess I don't think the tribal lines are uh, where is being suggested. Um, I think actually that the fact that they haven't been able to make this into the the newest cause celeb and they have been tried, it, it, they are really trying. So, you know, maybe we'll come back next week and I'll say, you know what, they were able to do it. Um, but I was I was on uh, Chris Cuomo's show this week, and even his liberal callers um, are quite moderate on this situation and quite understanding of why uh, this Marine um, behaved the way that he did. Um, and they, they seem to think it's inherently reasonable. Uh, I think because many of them have been in that kind of situation, and yes, um, and, and I actually, uh, let me make a point that I think um, Delano will very much agree with, which is, uh, a society loses something, um, particularly if men are uh, trained to always sort of put their heads down, their eyes down and look away and, and hope that sort of violence or insanity doesn't visit them. Um, I think that there is something uh, missing in a society that uh, forces young men in particular to behave in such a, you know, sort of emasculated way. Um and I think that uh, that's going to become the crux of this case if it's even charged. I, I, I honestly, at this point, I'd give it a 50-50 coin flip that a grand jury is even going to charge this guy. Um, I think the sentiment in the city, is, I think there's at least a chance that even in this liberal city, he won't even be charged. I, and again, I could be, you know, maybe I'm I'm uh, delusionally white-pilled on this, um, but I, I think that there's at least, I think there's a very small chance that he's actually convicted, mm-hmm. even if he is charged, because- like in the Bernie Getz case, where six out of 12 jurors um, had been the victim of some kind of street violence, right? There's this pervasive sense now. It's nowhere near as bad as it was in the 80s, um, but the trend lines are all bad. And there is this sort of uh, general sense of disorder 
um, that pervades particularly on on the subways. Um, and I think that that's that's widespread enough, even among moderates and liberals, uh, that I, I suspect this case will not go the way that say, you know, AOC thinks it's going to go. And I, I think that that's a really good thing. And finally, on that last bit, um, Josh mentioned, you know, the good terrain for for fighting the battle and determining who wins the battle. Um, I think crime and disorder is a very good terrain for the right. Um, I think we have thrown away that, or I should, should say we, I, I don't include myself in this because of all my many political missteps and mistakes in my life that are looking back, um, this has never been one of them. I've, I've never been on board for the the sort of libertarian criminal justice reform um, project, but I think it's it's a advantage that the right has thrown away. Um, I think it probably, I think is probably principally responsible, this kind of crime spike for swinging the state of New York 20 points in a gubernatorial election. Now they didn't make it over the finish line because, you know, <laughs> as they say, the red wave started below sea level, right? Um, it didn't quite make it over the shore in the case of New York, but that's an equal swing of what happened in Florida, right? Um, and I think that is almost entirely due to the crime issue. I think there's just something about living with that kind of uh, fear and disorder on a regular basis that really tends to cut through people's politics. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen, but I definitely think it's, it's quote unquote good terrain for the right. And I think that running on uh, law and order uh, would will be just as uh, potentially uh, just as popular as it was in in the '90s for the right to where we basically had to we flipped the left to the point where even Hillary Clinton um, and Joe Biden right had to to go all in on the 1994 crime bill because um, it's just something that ordinary people will not tolerate still. Um, and I find that now maybe again maybe I'm too uh, too optimistic on this one and and we'll <laughs> we'll we'll see the, the the liberal cities will once again find a new uh, floor. Uh, with which to be disappointing, but um, I think there's at least a potential here. So I, I was I was actually going to talk about the, um, the 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 coronation of King Charles and and um, the people that I saw online who hate tradition. Um, they they it's not just you know we once were a British colony. We don't we don't do monarchy in 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 America. It's uh, I think part of the reason that there was so much, um, at least criticism, at least from what I saw, is because the people doing it are committed to destruction, deconstruction, dismantling um, every structure that uh, creates and sustains life in a in a good and just society. Um, and and I think there there is some some connection to to what Inez brought brought up. But, but I, I want to pivot to what she said because uh, I, I think I think this is something that where there is some broad consensus, and I think there should be broad consensus on the left and the right. I actually um, have an op-ed that I hope is coming out this week, hopefully at the Federalist, fingers crossed, um, on the pro-life case for law and order. Um, and I make some of these exact arguments. Um, I think the that Planned Parenthood's expressed desire to defund the police should be like the bat signal for conservatives. Um, that we should take up this issue as something that we run on. Um, and, and not just as it relates to crime and disorder in downtown, you know, high-end, you know, business districts or the waterfront, but also in, in neighborhoods. Um, and, and that's where I, I tend to focus most of my argument. It's the same argument you can apply anywhere in the city. Um, but there are people who live under the constant threat of, of violence um, and neighborhoods where it is more common than we would like to acknowledge 
to see young men who have their names written in obituaries before they get them on diplomas. Um, and I don't think that that's something that the that the right should should run away from. I, I will say this to, to Inez's point on, on this specific case. Um, I, I, I understand there are a lot of things that people do during the course of, you know, an interaction, you know, of this type that I understand. Um, I understand why someone would want to restrain Jordan Neely. Um, and, and I think Inez used the word guess in terms of what he may do. It's my, I guess my only point is that there is a heavy price to pay if you guess wrong. Um, and, I, and I don't think we should lose sight of that. And again, it, the, the, the different identities at play to me are irrelevant. I, I also know that if, if this was a black man who had restrained Jordan Neely, then this probably wouldn't get much light anyway. AOC, Ayanna Pressley, none of these people would be, would be interested in it. And that, that's a sad commentary on our political class. Um, but these are things that I think you know, require, you know, some deep thinking and, and proper policy responses, but really a shift in, in our culture. And I think we talk about this all the time. Like, you know, there was a, there was a 13 year old kid in DC a couple, couple months ago who was shot and, and he tragically, you know, unfortunately died while him and a friend were out trying to steal cars at four in the morning. And when his mom went to her press conference with her attorney, because of course, um, she said, well, would you guys have felt better if it was if it was four in the afternoon? And I said, this is completely the wrong response. Right. So my friends and I, as we, as we were discussing it, you know, in our, in our text chat, we were like. I understand how a guy would make that decision, uh, but but the, the man was actually charged um, at first. People thought he was the, a white ex cop. And I think that's what drove a lot of the local and even international coverage. But he ended up being a black city worker. Um, and it took a little while to to charge him, but he he you know he'll have to face a jury because of this. So I think th these are bad choices all the way around. But coming back to the central point, um, we the the civil magistrate has to enforce law and order because they have to keep two things at bay. One is lawlessness, and the second is vigilantism. Neither of those things are good for for a society. So uh, I, I hope we don't see more of these incidents. But um, something tells me this isn't the last one. Very quickly before we wrap, I'll return to the Walter Russell Mead piece that I mentioned earlier in Tablet Magazine because I think his framing is really helpful. You are not destined to live in quiet times. Remember that because it's the reality. It's not a choice. It's not up for debate. Um, the the story of human history is right now, uh, there, there's no question about it, at a very, very strange and fluid moment. Um, there's, there's nothing we can do about it, uh, except for try to make it as peaceful as possible and, uh, to, to promote human flourishing as much as we possibly can, which means that these conversations are going to be enormously tumultuous. They're going to be disrupted by generative AI, by all kinds of different technologies, by, uh, artificial wombs. Um, it's all going to make it much, much more, more difficult for us to have these conversations. There will be upsides to these technologies, um, and we would be unwise to act as though that isn't the case, but uh, it is incumbent upon all of us to wake up every day and recognize that we are not living in quiet times. We are not destined to live in quiet times. And uh, that makes every single day, every single day, a challenge 
um, that we have to meet with that context in mind that you are living a very unusual life uh, for somebody with the software uh, that we are born with. So just, I, the, the, I think it's, I found that a very helpful framing um, and wanted to toss that over to the group. So on behalf of Delano, Inez, Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky and we will see you at the next NatCon squad. <laughs>